Well, hey, good morning, Harvest. How we doing? Good, good. Hey, do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, can you open them up to John 8? We're going to be in John 8 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. We have people coming down the aisles that would love to give you a copy of God's Word. Uh, We're going to be in the first part of John 8 this morning, so you're definitely going to want a Bible. And um, if you don't own a Bible, keep that as our gift to you. If this is your first time worshiping with us, my name is Calvin. I'm the lead pastor here at Harvest, and I'm just so pumped that you're worshiping with us. It's really an honor that you would spend part of your weekend with us, so I hope you feel welcome and loved as you came in the door. Um, Worship was great this morning, wasn't it? And one of the things I love about churches is we get to sing these great songs. Um, You know, the roaring lion has declared that the grave has no hold on me. Hallelujah, I will praise the name of Jesus. And then we get to open God's word and we get to learn about this man that we're singing praises to. And so what I want you to understand is what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the heart and nature of Jesus Christ, the exact person we were just worshiping, and we're going to learn about him. And that's an awesome thing. And uh, again, we're going to be in John 8, verses 1 through 11. And I'm going to be honest with you straight up from the beginning. Um, This is one of the most controversial passages in the entire Bible. There are not many passages that are more debated, argued about, um, people get angry about more than John 8, 1 through 11. Um, And and here's why. If you have your Bibles open, some of you, probably all of you, will see that this passage, starting from John 7.53 to John 8.11, has parentheses around it or brackets. Do you guys see that in your Bible? If you have it open, it's bracketed, and maybe by the the parentheses, it'll say something like this. It says that the earliest manuscripts do not include John 7.53 through 8.11. Do any of you guys see that? Okay, so here's the question. Why, do that, why does it say that? If it's in the Bible, why would it say that the earliest manuscripts don't include this passage? Here's why. Because the earliest manuscripts do not include John 7:53 through 8:11. It's not there in our earliest manuscripts. Most biblical scholars believe that this was added to the scripture uh, somewhere in the 4th or 5th century A.D., So somewhere in the 400s to 500s AD, this story was inserted into the Bible. And I can see some of you looking at me right now being like, Cal, you're blowing my mind. You're you're freaking me out. How can I trust that this is the word of God, that this is true, that this is holy, that this is inerrant if I'm finding out that some dude put this into the Bible hundreds of years after their earliest manuscripts? And aren't there like a lot of mistakes in the Bible? Like, how many of you guys have heard, well, you can't believe Scripture because Scripture is full of contradictions? How many of you guys have heard that argument? Right? That's something that, that, that skeptics or, or people who don't believe in, in Jesus or the Bible, they would make that argument. So, um, here's what I want to do. I want to take this as an opportunity for us to build our confidence in the inerrancy and the reliability of Scripture. I think this is going to be really, really good. So, I want to start um, by throwing you a chart. Because here's what I want you to see. This idea that the Bible contradicts itself and it can't be trusted is an intellectually lazy and false argument. So here's what this chart says. Um, Go down to the bottom, you see the New Testament. Um, The New Testament was finished being written in about 90 to 95 AD is when John wrapped up Revelation. Within 30 years of John um, finishing that letter, we have a complete manuscript of the Bible. That's only a 30-year time period, and we have 24,000 ancient manuscripts. People would copy God's word by hand so that churches could have it and people could know God and know the Bible. 
All right, so let's compare that to other works of ancient literature that, that have um, existed till today. Um, let's look at Plato, for example. I remember when I was a freshman at Calvin College, I had to take a philosophy class, and my professor was like this cool dude, always held coffee, had an awesome philosopher beard, and, and we had to do Plato's Republic. And, and never for one second... What was my philosophy professor like? We're not really sure if Plato wrote this, and we're not really sure if this is what Plato actually wrote. It was assumed to be true, but if you look at the data, um, it's believed that Plato wrote his Republic at around 350 BC. The earliest copy that we found of it is all the way in 900 AD. That's 1,300 years after it was written. All right, so just for some context, um, our country is, um, I think, 424 years old? By like 1,300, or maybe it's 242, I can't remember, it slipped me. Um, 1,300 years, and there's only seven copies. We have copies within 30 years and 24,000 of them, so we can know with certainty what the Bible says because we can compare the manuscripts against one another. Here's something I learned that's cool. I learned this this week. Do you know that if you just take the quotes from the early church fathers, the, the leaders of the church in, from 100 to 200 AD, if you just take their quotes about the Bible, you can reconstruct the entire New Testament outside of 11 verses from First and Second John. They were quoting it as scripture, um, what biblical scholars say is we have an um, embarrassment of riches in, in regards to ancient texts that can prove that what was written was actually written. Um, so here's a question. Um, aren't there a lot of mistakes in the Bible? So, so what do you do with this idea that, that man, there, there's, there's a lot of mistakes or contradictions? Um, here's the truth. There are a lot of mistakes. And, and here's why. Because back in 100 AD, people didn't have printing presses. The way the manuscripts were copied was they were copied by hand, word by word, often in secret and under candlelight because it was illegal to be a Christian at the time these manuscripts were being copied. And when you copy something by hand, humans are not perfect. They're going to make errors. So um, in the Bible, throw up the next slide. Um, in these ancient manuscripts, there's about 100,000 discrepancies or differences. And at first you're like, oh my goodness, that's a lot. Okay, but here's what you need to understand. Of those 100,000 discrepancies, 99,600 of them are grammatical and, and duplicates. Okay, so here's what that means. Someone put a comma down instead of a period. Someone misspelled a word. Someone um, put an exclamation point there that wasn't supposed to be there, and then the person who copied that mistake put that on theirs so it was duplicated, so instead of one error, it's actually two. 99,600 of them are grammatical mistakes that a high schooler could correct. Okay, so that leaves us with 400. Of those 400 discrepancies, 350 of them have no bearing on the text whatsoever. So here, an example would be Jesus was walking with his disciples, or it would say Jesus was walking with some of his disciples. It's a word that was taken out or added, but has no bearing on the story. Um, an A was taken out. It's very, very minor. And then of those 50 that are left, which John 8, 1 through 11 is one of the 50, um, if you add it or if you take it out, no matter what you do with it, there is not one single Christian doctrine that is affected in absolutely any way. There is zero contradictions in the Bible theologically. There is nothing that is competing with one another. This is the supernaturally preserved word of God. And think about it, this is something only God could do. 
This book was written by dozens of authors over thousands of years, and it perfectly coincides together and is based in history. We can have a lot of assurance that more than any other book that's ever been written, that what was written in God's word has been preserved. All right, so here's the question. If John 8 is not in the original manuscripts, why study it? Um, Here's the first reason. Because most biblical scholars believe that this event actually took place. Even though it's not in the original manuscripts, most people believed it happened. D.A. Carson, an American theologian, says, there is little reason for doubting that the event here described occurred. Brutz Metzger, another theologian, says, the account has all of the earmarks of historical veracity. Everything we're going to see today is consistent with what um, we know about Jesus, with what we know about the Pharisees, and what we know about our hearts. There is nothing anywhere else in Scripture that would contradict this story or say that this story could not have taken place. And many of you know this story. This is the story where the woman is caught in adultery and the Pharisees bring this woman to Jesus and Jesus scribbles something in the ground. Do we know what Jesus scribbled? Yes or no? Okay, that um, is what um, people call an internal proof of authenticity. Here's why. Um, because that detail is recorded and it had really nothing to do with the meaning of the story. In fact, what um, people who work for the FBI interrogators, what they'll do when they're trying to understand if someone's telling the truth or not, they look for details in the person's story that has nothing to do with what they're being questioned about. Because if I'm lying and I'm making up a story, all the information I'm going to be have is going to try to meet my end. But if it really happened, I'll remember what the color of the bird was that flew over my head. I'll remember ancillary details that aren't pressing to the story. There's internal proof of authenticity. Most people believe this happened. Here's the second reason. Um, There are absolutely important truths that we need to learn from this text. Um, We're going to learn a lot about Jesus from this passage. We're going to learn a lot about our hearts. And God wants to do, I think, a remarkable work in us. He's going to hit us right where we live. And I think it's going to be a powerful morning for us. So let's do this. Follow along as I read. I'm going to read the first six verses of John 8. Here's what it says. It says, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in, the ne- early in the morning he came down again to the temple, and all of the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? And they said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. All right, so Jesus comes down from the Mount of Olives. He's teaching like he did every day. The crowds gather. And it says all of a sudden the the Pharisees bring a woman who's been caught in the act of adultery. Um, There's very real reason for us to believe that this woman had been set up. Um, She was guilty of the sin. But but, um, there's real reason for us to believe that this had been a setup. Maybe she was the town prostitute and and someone... um, was paid off to to, um, get her caught having sex with them so they could bring this woman in front of Jesus. Maybe there was an affair that was going about that people knew about and and they paid off that man to, to catch this woman in the act. Here's how we can be pretty sure this woman was set up because why is only the woman brought before Jesus? Right, some of you might not be aware of this yet, but in order for adultery to commit place, it involves two parties. And yet only one is brought before Jesus. Someone got to skate off. So this woman was set up, but here's the thing, she was guilty. 
And, and here's what the Pharisees are doing. They're trying to set a trap. And, and you need to understand, it's a brilliant trap. See, what happened is, is the law of Moses, the Jewish law, said that if you committed adultery, you had to be stoned. Okay, but the problem was is uh, Israel was under Roman occupation, and one of the Roman rules was you're not allowed to commit capital offense without Roman authority. It's why the Pharisees had to bring Jesus to Pilate in order to crucify him because they weren't allowed to do it themselves. So here's the trap. If Jesus says, yes, she broke the law, she should be stoned, they can take Jesus to the Romans and saying, hey, he's trying to execute capital punishment without your um, approval, he's breaking your law. And then if he says, no, we shouldn't stone her, now he's a false prophet because he's breaking the law of Moses. It's a brilliant trap. But look what Jesus does. It says in the, verse 7, and they continued to ask him. Isn't that crazy? They're pressing the issue. Like, put yourself in this story. Hey, we're not going to let this go. What should we do? What should we do? Answer us. They're, they're putting the pressure on because they think they have him. And he stood up and said to him, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Here's the big idea this morning. It's this. It's that when I am blinded by my when I am blind to my own sin, I put everyone else on trial. When I am blind to the sin that lives in my heart, I'm so quick to put everyone else on trial. And we're going to close this morning with Jesus' interaction with the woman who's caught in adultery because it's a beautiful picture of grace and the gospel. But where I want to live for most of our time together is I want to talk about Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees. Because I think what we're going to discover is that we are way more like the Pharisees than we would be comfortable admitting. And um, I, I just, uh, again, think about this story. Place yourself in it. it. It's a super emotional story. And I think one of the things that's hard for us as Americans to picture is capital punishment being ex like executed out in public. Right? Like when we put someone on death row and that person is executed for their crime, we do it in a facility that's far away. It's not on television. No one gets to see it. Maybe there's some family there maybe or a couple witnesses, but, but it's hidden from the public. Like it's hard for us to imagine dragging someone through the streets who's been caught and killing them there in the spot. And what blows my mind about this passage is how willing and ready the Pharisees were to do it. They're like, all right, Jesus, what should we do? Should, should we kill her? She's guilty. We, we pronounced her guilty. Let, let's go. And um, one of the things that the Lord has just placed on my heart that I've just been convicted with is I think we're way more like the Pharisees than we'd like to admit. Here's the first thing I want us to see is that you and I, we are quick to pick up stones. We are quick to pick up stones. Here's the truth. Even though we don't hold the stones physically, I think in our hearts, we hold a lot of judgment towards other people. And even though we might not say it, and even though we might not be calling for them to die in our hearts, we are throwing stones at people all the time. I think this is probably the standard disposition for many of us in this room. And so we're going to talk about what does it look like to, to cast stones, and why should we put those stones down. So what I want to do to start is I want to start with talking about three targets of our stones. Who is it in our life that we tend to cast stones at most quickly? Um, here's the first. I think we tend to cast stones at people who are different from us. 
We tend to cast stones at people who are different from us. We do this all the time. Listen, in our broken, prideful sin nature, look here, we are wired to believe that we are awesome and we are better than other people. Like, we wouldn't, we wouldn't say this, but most of us wake up in the morning, we look in the mirror, and we're like, man, when God created me, he was like, nailed it. Like, I'm awesome. I've got everything figured out. I, I, I think better than everyone, and, and I'm awesome. It's because we're sinful and we're prideful. It's in our nature. And so here's what that means. That means we tend to surround ourselves with people who look like us and think like us and act like us and hold the same political views as us, that worship like us, and and that make the same amount of money as we do. We tend to surround ourselves with people who look and think exactly like us. And then what we do is then, then we cast judgment on those who are different. Like, I don't need to get into the history of our country and the historical racism, right? We all know about that. A lot of that is rooted in we think we're better than people who look different than us. It's a sinful, prideful disposition. Politics is a great example of this right now, right? right the way our politics is set up is you either agree with me or you're wicked, right? If you're a conservative, you're either a conservative or you're evil, And if you're a a liberal, you're either liberal or you're wicked, right? There's no middle ground. We cast judgment on those who view the world differently than us. We need to be careful of this playing up and and, and rooting out even in our own church, right? We can judge people based on parenting styles, right? Where it's like, man, um, those people are terrible parents. Look how crazy their kids are. Our kids are awesome. My kids tuck me in bed at night. Like, I'm doing amazing, right? Kids are running around like with their shirts off, like crazy people. They need to get their act together. That's what we think. Um, here's one. I think people who are wired differently than us, we tend to cast judgment on. Um, I think if you're extroverted and you like to talk a lot, I think you look at people who are an introverted and you're like, man, they're boring. They don't have much to say. And I think if you're introverted, you're like, hey, would you please shut up? Stop talking. Right? We giggle because we've thought it, Right? We always think how we're wired is more virtuous. Um, Here's one. I think we're way harder on the sin bends of people that we don't struggle with. We're way harder on the sin bends that we don't struggle with um, that we find other people struggling with. So here's an example. If I'm in small group and my sin bend is I'm a workaholic and I'll neglect my family, I'll get lost in work and I find my identity in that too often. If I've got a guy who's, another guy who's a workaholic in my small group, I'm going to be way easier on his sin bend than I am the guy who's lazy, right? For the guy who's a workaholic, it's like, dude, I understand how that feels. You know, that's so, that's so difficult. I, I, I resonate with you. And the guy who's lazy is like, get your act together. You've been called to work. You've been called to provide. Like, we'll throw stones because we don't struggle with that sin bend. Um, what's really sad is this even plays itself out in the church amongst different churches and pastors, People would be like, well, you know, well, well this, is the, this is how a church should be. This is the size a church should be. And it's funny, everyone who makes that argument is describing their own church, right? I've got it right. Or this is how worship music should be. Or this is how your discipleship method should be. And rather than being for each other and helping one another and learning from one another, we throw stones. And one of the things we're encouraging our staff is, is hey, I want you to build relationships with people from other churches who think, who still on the majors we agree on, 
but who do ministry a little different than us because there's still things that we can learn. We throw stones. One of the most important disciplines you can have in your life You know, it's funny, when we think of disciplines, we think of reading God's word or prayer or or all of these things. Uh, An important discipline is surround yourself with people who are different than you. Have relationships with people who don't look like you, talk like you, think like you. Because those walls of judgment are only going to break down in relationship. We throw stones a lot. Here's another person we, we throw stone at. It's people in authority, Right? We tend to throw stones at people who are in authority over us. Like, like I'll prove it to you. Who's the most hated man in America right now? Yeah, you guys laugh. President Trump, right? Those stinking liberals. Give them a chance. Um, Who was the most hated man in America before President Trump? Do you know? President Obama. Those stinking conservatives never gave him a chance, right? Listen, our wiring, like what a crazy job to take, by the way. Hey, take this job and you know half the country is going to hate your guts. Like who would want that? Right? We, listen, think about Adam and Eve in the garden. Hey, if you eat of the fruit of this tree, you can be like God. The original sin was we didn't want to be under authority. I think all of us on some level have authority issues. That's why we love being Americans, because we're the land of the free. Right? We are skeptical of authority. In general, we are quicker to criticize our bosses than to praise them. Office chatter is usually not geared towards how amazing management is doing and how awesome they are. I've never once heard anyone say to me, dude, I just can't get over how awesome my school board is. They're doing everything awesome. No, no, we pick out the things that they're failing at or that they're not doing well, and it's like, I could do that better, and we are wired to think I could organize, I could lead, I could do my boss's job better, I could be a better small group leader than my small group leader, I could be a better president of my neighborhood association, and then what God will do in his humor is every once in a while, he'll give us that position, for us to realize we're not that good at it and it's way harder than we thought it would be and it's more nuanced. Can I encourage you with something? The people who are in authority in your life, whether that's a boss or a small group leader or an elder or a pastor, can you pray for them? Let's be for the people God has put over us in authority because we trust God and we believe that he knows what he's doing and that he's good. We cast stones at people in authority and then here's the last one and this one gets personal Um, We tend to throw a lot of stones at family, don't we? Isn't it amazing how the people we love the most we so often show the least amount of grace to? I uh, emailed our soul care or texted our soul care department this week and and I was like, in um, the the people that you meet with and the issues you're walking through with people, what percentage of them at, at some level has some family bitterness or dysfunction or anger or judgment? And they all got back to me and said between 80 and 90%. All of us, most of us walk into this place casting stones at family or having stones cast at you from family. And here's why I think that is. It's because you can't hide around family, right? Like you know each other's strengths and weaknesses so well and the weaknesses drive you crazy. It's like I've seen this over and over and over again. Why can't you get over that thing? And we tend to view them through their failure and we're also um, just frustrated because they know our weaknesses and they know where we're not growing and it can get toxic very quickly if we choose to be throwing stones. Okay, so this is what God's spirit does, right? What I've been praying for is that God would place someone on your heart who you're quick to throw stones at 
Who is it in your life that you tend not to be gracious towards? Who do you tend to be judgmental towards? Do you got that person? All right, if you have that person, turn to the person next to you, hopefully not that person, and say, I got that person. I had a couple, seriously, after the service that said, yeah, when you asked us to do that, we looked at each other and said, you're that person. <laughs> not, not a great move, right? Listen, this is something that none of us walk in here clean from, which is why I'm so excited about it, because the Lord's going to root out, I think, something important. Here's the scariest thing about John 8 to me. The Pharisees didn't care about the woman they were judging at all. In fact, she was just a tool to trap Jesus. They viewed her as less than human. And I think when we cast stones at other people, we're doing the same thing. We view them only as a failure, only in their weakness. We're viewing them as less than human to meet our own ends, to make us feel justified, to make us feel better about ourselves, to puff us up in front of others. It's a really scary place to be. Look at verse 7. It says this, and when they continued to ask him, right, they're pressing the issue, he stood up and said, let him who is without sin be the first among you to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. One of the things I love about this passage is how Jesus is moving at his own pace. They're like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And he just bends down and starts writing. And the Pharisee is like, you're not answering us. What are you going to do? He stands up, says one sentence, goes back down to writing. He's not pressured at all for a second in this text. But look at verse 9. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Here's the next thing I need you to understand, is that we are all guilty. That we are all guilty. That on our own, that there is not a single person who could stand before the Lord if it weren't for Jesus Christ in their place. That every single person in here rightfully deserves to be damned to hell for eternity because we've rebelled against our creator. And I think when we begin to throw stones at each other, one or two things is happening. Either the first thing is, is we've forgotten that, that we are sinners saved by grace and that we are guilty, or what I think most likely happens is we begin to, to enter into a ranking system of our sins. It's like, well, I have this sin, but this sin is, isn't as bad as this sin, and this sin is way worse than this sin, and we've ranked the sins. So there's some like medium level sinners, there's some like I don't sin very much, and then there's some bad sinners. And here's the crazy thing about when we rank our own sins, the sins we struggle with are always at the bottom of the ladder, aren't they? They're like, yeah, God's cool with this one, and I'm working through it, and he's working with me. But man, these people, they're the bad people. I read a quote from J.D. Greer. He's a pastor in North Carolina. He's also the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and he summed this up so perfectly. Here's what he said. He says, we create our little list of rules, and then we feel a sense of distinction for keeping them. We imagine that we are set apart from others who have fallen simply because we are picking and choosing which sin God cares about. We do, do we not understand the gospel? In Christ, there are no good people or bad people, people who have it together or dysfunctional people. There are only bad, dead, sin-sick rebels without God and without hope in this world, who God saves freely by a sheer act of grace, real grace, not the parody and scandal of moralistic grace we so easily construct. Just because God in his grace kept us from some of the worst fruitions of our sin doesn't mean that we are made of something different than others who have gone down that route. As the Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShaney once said, the seed of every sin is in every heart. There is none righteous, none who instinctively seeks after God. 
church, one of the things that we are really, really big on here is that we have to find our identity in the gospel. That we are not seen for our failure, that we are known fully, that we are loved fully, that we are children of God, that we are empowered, that we are adored by God, that he is with us, that, that we are saints, we are not defined as sinners, that we are fully forgiven, fully loved. Okay, but we can't forget the other part of the gospel that says we deserve none of that. That without Jesus Christ doing the miraculous, we are just as guilty as that woman or anyone else in our lives that we would cast stones at and say, wow, they're sinful people who are out of control. When I remember the gospel, there's no room in my heart to cast stones because the only, room, only thing in my heart that I can do is be thankful that God has moved, that God has saved me, and that God is working in my life. Like, who are we to cast stones? We're not God. And the one who could cast stones gave his son so that we might have forgiveness. All of us are guilty. Okay, here's the third one. Um, stones are really, really heavy. Stones are really, really heavy. We need to understand this. And um, I need a volunteer. So sometimes I like to think of the people who would like most least to be called up, and I'm going to call them up. So Joel Rune, can you come up here? I need to use you for a volunteer. Can we give Joel Rune a round of applause as he comes up? How, do you do, how you doing, buddy? Good. Man. good. Um, having a good day? Yeah. We were in small group together a couple years ago, still friends. So you having a good day? Good day? So far. So far? Well, it's about to get bad for you, all right? So for the sake of my analogy, um, Joel Rune has just done something really, really stupid, all right? I don't care what it is, but you have failed, and you have failed spectacularly. So here's what I want you to do to represent that. I just want you to sit down and look as sad as you possibly can, okay? Can you handle that? Okay. I didn't say act like a three-year-old. I just said look sad. Like, well, way to, hey, way to go for it, man. This is your moment. Um, okay, so here's the thing. In this scenario, and I understand these are blocks, not stones, but for the sake of the analogy, hang with me. I've got a choice, right? I can pick up a stone and say, I can't believe you did that. Then I can pick up another stone that said, man, I would have never have done that. I'm a way better person than, than, than Joel is. Here's one I could do. This, this one I love at all. It's not creepy at all. Man, I hope you feel the full weight of the consequence of your sin. Right? Weird, right? We don't want that, but we want others to feel that for some unknown scary reason. Um, how about the one is, man, you've really let a lot of people down. And uh, I just am so disappointed. We can pick the stone. Man, I just don't know how I could ever trust you again. Um, so here's the thing. In this moment... I'm holding all of these stones of judgment. Is there anything I can do to make anything better right now? Is this helping? Listen, my hands are full of judgment. Listen, Romans says it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance, not the condemnation of the followers of Jesus Christ. I'm not making anything better. Um, I'm sinfully trying to puff myself up, but nothing's happening. So I have a choice right now. I can keep throwing stones, which is going to damage the relationship, beat him up when he's already down, or I can make a choice. I can drop the stone, and I can say, hey, let's get back up together. I'm with you. I'm for you, and we're going to walk through this. Listen, this is what Jesus did. Does no one else condemn you? Neither do I. 
Okay, this is what Jesus calls us to do. Holding on to stones does nothing, and it helps nothing. All right, you can sit down. Give it up for Joel. Thanks, man. Listen, again, let's let God be God. Let's withhold judgment for God. It's not our job to be the judge. It's our job to love and to care and to be lights in a dark world. And when we hold on to these stones, we're not only hurting one another, we're hurting our testimony as lights in a dark world. We need to put down the stone. Okay, look at verse 10. It says, Jesus stood up and said to the woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Here's the last thing I want you to see from this text. It's that Jesus is the safest place for the guilty to go. Jesus is the absolute safest place for the guilty to go. Here's what I love about this story, what's so amazing. These Pharisees, who didn't care about this woman at all, that viewed her as less than human, that was using her as a tool to try to trap Jesus, they inadvertently took her to the safest place she could possibly be. They did the best thing for this woman because they brought her to Jesus. Jesus was the only one in that moment that could stand in front of her and protect her and say, no one condemns you and neither do I. And Jesus full well knew that the reason he could forgive is because he was gonna die and pay the penalty for that sin. He says, I'm going to provide you safety in this moment because I will die to pay sin's penalty. But here's what I love even more. He doesn't just care about safety in the moment. He's providing safety for her future. Because he says, listen, go and sin no more. He's saying, I love you so much, I care about your future. And if you keep going down this path, it's not going to end well. It's going to lead to death. Follow me, love me, Walk with me, let me transform your heart, and I will provide you safety as you go. Um, There's some of us in here today, if we could be honest, we resonate a lot with this woman who's been caught in adultery. I mean, think about her day. Let's say it was a Thursday. She woke up Thursday morning. It was another normal day. And by Thursday at noon, it felt like her life was hanging by the balance. She thought she was going to die. She has been drugged half naked through the streets. There are, um, realize that, that, that someone lied to her, that she's been set up. There are people that she doesn't know condemning her. And it's like, how did this happen? How did I get here? How did things get out of control so fast? Listen, if you're here and you're like, man, I'm not in a great place right now, the best and safest place for you to go is Jesus. Because he's the one who forgives, he's the one who loves, and he will sustain us and walk through whatever we're going through with him. I know that to be true. And listen, there's some of us in here who are guilty, not of the, what the woman did, but we're guilty of being Pharisees. And the Lord has placed on our heart, man, we throw a lot of stones and we cast judgment and, and we have taken the gospel for granted and gone our own way. Listen, if that's you, the safest, best place for you to go is Jesus. Because Jesus even forgives our judgment And when we're near him and we understand what he has done for us, those stones go away and what's in its place is love and grace and mercy towards one another. That's what we're called to. So here's what we're gonna do. If I could just have you bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. We're gonna close a little bit differently. If you've been here a lot with us, you know that I usually wrap up by praying a prayer and then we do a song in worship. And um, I'm not gonna pray over us this morning. Um, here's what we're going to do. 
In a couple minutes, Taylor's going to start a song that's going to close out our time in worship. I'd invite you to join in with us. Um, But here's what I want. I want to create a space for us right now to get to Jesus. We know that he's here. We know that he is in our presence, that God's spirit is with us. And so if you're here and you're like, man, I resonate with that woman's story, I want to create a moment for you to get to Jesus. He's the safest, best place for you to go. Pray to him. Call out to him. Say, God, I can't do this anymore on my own. I need your forgiveness. I need your help. I need you to be with me. And if you're here and God has convicted your heart with, man, I've been walking in a lot of judgment, I want you to get to Jesus. So we're going to give you a couple minutes just to pray in quiet. And here's all that I ask. Would you just be authentic with the Lord? Would you make a step of faith to say that what I'm doing right now is real? I'm not going to go through the motions, but I want to meet with God in a real way right now.